we are finishing up our series today on Elijah. And man, this has been a good series. The feedback that, we've, that I've gotten from it, God has really been using in your life. And um, I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad that you take kind of the wet firewood of these pieces of paper that I always set before me every week and you could do something with it. Because the great thing is that he's not limited to my eloquence. He's not li- limited to, um, to uh, my ability to, to use proper speech. But he's able to take his word and do something in your life with it. And I'm so grateful for that and so grateful that he's been faithful with that. If you missed any of the sermons, definitely jump online and, and watch those. And don't miss out for an opportunity for God to do something in your life like he's done in so many others. Our church has been around for a long time. It started in 1946. And um, so many great things that God's done through the years. And as I was preparing this message, and we're finishing up the last bit that's about Elijah in the scripture. Um, it's in First uh, Kings chapter 19, so you can go ahead and turn there in advance. And as I was preparing this message and looking at this bizarre story of Elijah, so after all these great things, it's this chapter 19 is pretty depressing and, and almost embarrassing that that's included in his life. And 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 as I kind of walking through that and trying to figure out what you know, why did God include that in the Word? What does God want to do? in us and through us through that word. And so, um, I, and I always try to take the scripture and give, it, give a, a real life example of something that's happened. Over a decade ago, we had this guy who was volunteering at our church. He was a, he, he was, had, he had a job and he was just volunteering at a high level in our church. He was a real blessing. The stuff that he did for the church, the way that he helped, um, you know, he, he just, he was just awesome. Just so many great things. He, he really helped the church and really helped the church be better. Um, he, it was so great. Seemingly out of the blue, he quit. And he didn't like stop, he quit. And it was a scene and he was disgruntled and he began to slander everybody else in the church and talk bad about everybody else in the church. And it was, um, it was just bizarre. Like, I mean, he'd been serving for all these years. He'd been helping out so much. He'd been doing such a great job. He was so happy to be there. He was so joyful. And then almost like he snapped and he was done. And it seemed like it was out of the blue, except as we begin to, like, think back and try to evaluate what happened, how did he get here, we, there was something that he said all the time that... Um, that really began to show us that this had been brewing for a long time. And he said this, no one is helping me. And I remember him saying this, and we talked about this as a staff, and I was just a staff uh, pastor at this point, and he would say that no one's helping me. And we were puzzled because it, we don't, it didn't seem like he ever asked anybody to help him. And it's to pick up the weight of what they're not doing, and you can get disgruntled from that. You can get to the place where you say, you know what, I don't even care. I'm going to act like everybody else. And you just throw up your hands. You can act. You can get this thought in your head, no one's helping me, if you're working on a school project. And there's always someone who's always a parasite in a group project who's trying to uh, get their grade off of your work. But you just begin to think, well, I don't even care anymore. 
I'm not going to be involved in this. Or maybe even at home. You just begin as you're in your house and you're working, you just begin to say, no one helps me. My, my spouse never helps me. They don't care. They're not involved. They're, you know, I'm doing all this by myself. My kids never help. They're, not, you know, they're just using me or whatever. And you, you just, no one ever helps me. No one ever helps me. No one ever helps me. And that keeps running through your head. And if you're not careful, these thoughts can cause you to run from God's assignment for your life. They can cause you to run from God, be disappointed in God. Be ungrateful toward God, even bitter toward God. And what we're about to see with Elijah is, I mean, he's just, God has just done these amazing things. But these words begin to run through his head. And he begins to run from the call and the assignment that God has for him. And he's running out of fear, but he's also running out of selfishness. If you've got your Bibles, I mentioned it, 1 Kings chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to read a couple different scriptures, so you want to stay there and uh, don't close it after we read it the first time. Now let me give you the backdrop of what's happening. All right, so, um, you know, we've already done four weeks in the series. I won't go through back all of that. But last week, God did a miracle. And there was a confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and God won. The God, the one God of Elijah, he won. He proved himself miraculous. And the prophets of Baal were executed. And Elijah now is returning to the palace with King Ahab. And that part always puzzled me a little bit. Why would Elijah um, go back to the palace with King Ahab? But what it shows us is he was loyal to the king. He wasn't trying to take over a government. He wasn't trying to make himself king. He was honoring the people God put in leadership over his life. And he was hoping now that because of what just happened, he's going to go back to the palace with King Ahab. Ahab's going to repent, offer repentance on behalf of the entire nation. There would be revival and the worship of God would be restored. So in this last miracle uh, Ahab's returning back to the palace in his chariot, and Elijah pulls up his, his, uh, uh, his robe and runs, outruns the chariot all the way to the palace. I mean, he is lit up. He's just seen God do this amazing miracle. He can't wait to get to, back to the palace to see what God is going to do next. His motivation in all of this was not for himself, but for the glory of of God. So here he is. They get back to the palace. Ahab tells everybody what happened. He tells his wife Jezebel what happened. And we read in verse number two the response of what happens next. It says, So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. So here's, he, he, he's gone all the way to the palace, he's with King Ahab, he thinks, all right, Ahab is going to be king of this country, uh, he's going to be even the, the leader in this relationship, he's going to tell his wife Jezebel, is trying to kill all the prophets, that no, they couldn't do anything, but the God of Elijah, he did a miracle, we must follow him, but no, he, King Ahab stays in the same position, letting Jezebel rule the nation and make 
decisions that the king should be making. And Jezebel says, hey, Elijah, you're dead. I don't care what happened. I am going to kill you. And after all of these amazing confrontations that Elijah had had against King Ahab, all these, uh, all these events that we looked at in the last four weeks where he didn't have fear, he was fully confident in God, what happens next is absolutely bizarre. Elijah was afraid. And his fear made him run. And he left. He, you know, I'm not going to give Jezebel an opportunity to kill me. And that next verse, for the first time in the entire account of Elijah's life, you can read it, it says, Elijah was afraid. He had this expectation that it was now the hard work was done and revival was going to come. But when he showed up to the palace, there was still more work to do. Jezebel was still there as an evil power. And there was still more work that God was going to use Elijah to do to bring about the revival and the restoration and to bring back the reconciliation toward him. Rather than stay and continue that hard work of reformation, Elijah left. He was fearful. His expectations didn't meet reality. And so he traveled as far away as he could uh, on foot. Um, scholars, as they map it out, estimate he was traveling up to 20 miles a day. Um, again, not wanting to be found, so traveling secretly so no one would know where he was. He was afraid. We read that. And as you read the beginning of verse 19, um, he was also disappointed and he was depressed. He was sleeping all day. An angel would wake him up and feed him. He continued to sleep. And he was very dejected. Even though he had all these great victories, he felt that he had lost. And in chapter 9, the second half of verse 9, where you begin to see God coming after Elijah. He asked him this question. He asked him a couple times. He says in verse number 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is the first account Elijah responds, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. No one's with me. No one's helping me. I can't do this. And God is confronting Elijah, why are you here? Why are you in this cave? Why are you in this isolation? And he's, I'm the only one serving. I'm the only one doing this. I'm all alone. And for Elijah and for us, when we begin, for the gentleman from a decade ago, when we begin to say, I'm the only one, this is like a, a ministry death sentence. Because when you are saying, I'm the only one, I'm the only one serving, you have put a focus on yourself and you've taken your focus off God. If it's just Elijah and God, he's already just seen it at Mount Carmel. What happens? They win. If it's just you and God serving, no matter what happens, God will accomplish his plan and his purposes. When God asked, why are you here? Elijah should have told the truth. I have selfishness. I had wrong expectations. 
what I wanted you to do, you didn't do. After all this hard work, after this three and a half years of, of build up where we confront King Ahab and the prophets and the rain finally comes after a drought, they were all supposed to turn to you and they didn't. I don't want to go on. I don't want to keep serving you. When we, if we can be honest, the times in our life when we've run from God or we've run from what he's called us to, if he asks us why are we here, sometimes we say, you know, oh, they tore down the altars, or they, you know, people weren't engaging in you, all these things were happening. I was the only one who was doing anything and I couldn't do it by myself anymore. If we could be truthful, it's because we had rock expectations of what we wanted God to do. And because there's a, there's a selfishness in there. We're making it about us and not about God. That has happened to me as your pastor. And, I, you know, we always share different parts of our story and our journey with you. Try to be open. And I didn't think through when this was, but I would say two years ago, um, yeah, I think it was spring of 2016, and we, we were, you know, we just got to this place, I'm like, you know what, we're going to quit counting how many people come to church because it was too depressing every week, and we... Um, it seemed like we were finally ready that God was going to grow, and then it just went it just went down again. And I'm like, this I can't do this. I don't think I can be pastor here. I don't think I've got what it takes. God, I I'm not sure I heard you. It seemed like you called me into this, but I I think I misheard you because there should be some sort of of positive fruit from what's happening here. And. And I was ready, like my expectations were that the church would have been 600 people by 2016. That was my expectation. And even now it's probably uh, every Sunday morning I have to like beat down my expectation a little bit. You know, I'm just, a, you, you know, we just want to see God move. And for every chair and overflow and, you know, for us to set up video screens in the parking lot, like, that is just our heart as a pastor. That's just what we want. And I was, uh, I was really wrestling, like, and really having a lot of conversations, like, I, you know, maybe, maybe we need to hand this over. And hand it to someone else, and maybe we're only supposed to be here for a, a season, and, and I... I can't remember if I've said this in this service, but at that time I was, you know, Pastor John was leading a ministry in Tanzania and I was traveling with him. And every time we were over there, I would tell God, God, if you tell me to move here, we'll move here. God, we're ready. I'm going to bring my whole family here. We'll live here. I'd love to be a missionary here. I am volunteering for Africa, God. Call me here and I'll do it. And uh, he never would. He never would. And to uh, go there even under positive circumstances, would be running from what God called us to do. As we look at Elijah's life, as I look at my life, as I look at different people I've known over the years, if you want to stay out of that place where you're running from what God has for you, where you're running from uh, uh, or even where 
you're disappointed from expectations you've established that and, and it feels like God hasn't met those expectations, there's a couple of things we need to do. We see this in the scripture as God's working and talking with Elijah. First, you need to be thankful for his work in your life. When Jezebel confronted Elijah and said, hey, by this time tomorrow, I'm doing everything in my power to kill you. He forgot, he quickly forgot what God just did. He quickly forgot about all the times God had protected him, all the different ways God had provided for him. And he should have stayed there and waited to see what God would do. Because God never told him to leave. If you want to stay out of that place, you must thank him for the things he's done in your life. Always thank him for the things he's done, the things he did yesterday. And, uh, and here's like kind of one big thing about following Jesus, because we're always praying for stuff, and the one, if we're praying for something and God doesn't answer that prayer, it like knocks us off course. He's answered prayers for us for 20 years in our life, but all of a sudden there's one prayer he didn't answer, and we're like, you know what, why, why would I even, why, why are you even... Um, uh, why do I even follow you and begin to question, do you even care about me? Do you even love me? If Jesus never does anything else for you in your entire life, if he never answers another prayer for you in your entire life, he's already done enough. And this is the place we need to be to continue to worship him and to continue to say, my life is yours. Do with it whatever you want. Because he, God already sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in our place, that we could be forgiven of all of our wrong things that we've ever done, that we could have our relationship with God the Father restored, that we could have abundant, overflowing life in this life, but also we could have the promise and the hope of eternal life. If he never answers another prayer for me, if he never answers another prayer for you, if he never, never does another thing for this church, he has done enough. And we can come in here every single week with our hands raised and our voice scratching and sing to him, you are worthy, hallelujah, you are king, you are good, there's no doubting you, you never fail me, because because our focus is not on ourselves, our focus is on him. And that's how Paul, who was one of the apostles who just went on all these missionary journeys on northern Africa and, and Asia Minor and Europe and, and even some speculate he made it up to, um, to, to the United Kingdom uh, at, at, on his last, last missionary journey. He lived his life through beatings and ship, shipwrecks and through uh, imprisonment and ultimately through death and never gave up on that and never had a pity party because he said, I was a murderer of Christians, but yet Jesus forgave me and he saved me. He doesn't have to do anything else for me. I've been bought with a price and I owe him my entire life, my entire existence, my entire comfort. It is all his. And when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus and what he's already done for us, it really keeps us out of this place of fear and out of pity and out of selfishness. If you are 
in a place and you're the only one serving, consider it a privilege. Thank you, Lord, for this job with these lazy coworkers. Thank you that this job pays my bills. Thank you for this spouse that does such a great job breaking in our couch <laughs> and making the most use out of our cable bill. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these kids whose beauty is on the outside. Thank you for them, Lord. Thank you. You give thanks to the Lord in, a, in all circumstances. If you want to stay out of that cave, stay out of that place, you must listen to his voice. And this was the verse that our worship leaders um, read this morning. Where God's trying to snap Elijah out of his despondency. He's trying to, like, he's trying to wake him up. Like, come on, feel something. Uh, uh, do you remember who I am? So there's this huge windstorm that hits the mountains that's sending rocks flying. It says, but God wasn't in it, but, but, but yet it was happening. Then there was a huge earthquake, and it said, but God wasn't in it. Then there was the, uh, the, the fire that came, and it said, but God wasn't in it. Two things on that. One, it was showing that God's not Baal. So they, the people of Baal were worshiping these elements of nature. But that's not God. God is not these God is not these miracles. He is not these experiences. Those things exist outside of God. It is God who makes those things. It is God who is in charge of those things. But secondly, what he's saying is he, he, you don't need these things to happen. So earthquakes can happen and miracles can happen, but you don't need those things to happen for me to happen. So after these, after the earthquake, after the fire, after the windstorm, it said, then God spoke in a still, small voice. And he doesn't need all these things to happen to get your attention. He is fully able to speak directly into your heart. So God speaks and Elijah listens and it says finally he put on his mantle, which is like a, a cloth covering, and he stood out. He came out of the cave and stood out and, the, and the, the, the heavenly presence of God went by him. And he stood right next to God Almighty in the same way that Moses did. And God asked him again, why are you here? For our teenagers who were at summer camp this week, as we look at this part, the earthquake and the wind and the fire, one thing it reminds us and one thing we need to learn is you don't need summer camp to follow God. You don't need these big, huge blowout services. You don't need, um, you don't, you, you don't need these, um, uh, these uh, um, uh, Deeply emotional experiences we have before God which are positive and are amazing. So I'm not diminishing those. But you don't need those to follow God. Because what happens is once you haven't experienced something like that in a while, you begin to question God. Is he even real? Does he even care about me? Listen, you don't need the earthquake and the wind and the fire. You just need to listen for the still small voice. And he's there and he's ready to speak. If you'll get in a place to quiet down and settle down and listen, he will talk to you.
teenagers at camp, they, like Elijah, they've just experienced these huge miracles in their life. And then they come home and there's a, maybe there's a Jezebel in their home, but there's, there's something they're afraid of when they get home. And that fear makes them run. Makes them give up everything that just happened. And so God's just done huge things in their life to get home and, and the parents are jerk or they're just going into that same hideous situation and they throw up their hands like, man, I thought everything was going to be all better once I got home. And they give up and they run and they walk and they want to go back to camp and listen, all we need is to listen to his voice. He can encourage us in whatever we're walking through, his ability to pour his spirit out and protect us no matter where we are. God is still speaking. If you are in that place, if you're in that place and you're hiding and you're running, maybe you've run. What God does next in Elijah's life is he gives him another assignment. Listen, I know you've come all this way. I know you've traveled so far. I know you're in this cave. I know you have no expectation of going back. But I've got three more things I need you to do. And then you can retire. He tells them to go, uh, to, uh, go anoint these two guys. And then anoint the third guy, Elisha, as his predecessor, as the new prophet. Do these three things. Elijah at least partially accepted it. So we read in the scripture, the only thing it says that he actually did was he anointed Elisha. Elisha eventually ended up anointing one of the kings that Elijah was supposed to do. And he even still, after all these ways he'd served God faithfully through his entire life, at the very end of it he had this, he had this hiccup. And, and we can be there too. We can be there too. I mean, we can live a, a life of, uh, of great miracles, a life of closeness to God. But if something doesn't happen the way we'd expect it to, we can give up. The guy at our church from a decade ago, the one who volunteered and the one who got angry, he left our church. He, he never came back. I don't bump into him very often. Probably the last time I saw him was maybe three years ago. He's not the same guy that I met. The guy that I met was joyful and excited, loved being at church, loved worshiping, loved volunteering. The guy I saw three years ago lost his joy. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose being excited about being in a worship service, be excited about being in our church, being excited about God using us and our gifts and our abilities. Sometimes things happen to us that are difficult. Sometimes people get burned and, you know, we've had some people come into the church over the years who were, uh, who were ministry people who were just wrongly let go. By, by other churches and other ministries, many of those through the years, which is one of the things why our former pastor named our church Restoration Church. He'd always say that we are a restoration church, and God would bring in these people who had been hurt. They'd, they'd heal, and they'd get back into ministry. Don't be in a place where you won't step back into that ministry, where we won't let God give you another assignment. 
something that changed in my life this year. I used to be very easygoing, like, oh, you come to our church, take as much time as you need to heal and as much time as you need to um, to be restored. But I, I learned I, that's changed in my life over the last uh, the last six months. Because on Christmas Eve, my mom, on her way to our service, fell and broke her hip. She slipped on the ice, fell and broke her hip. Thankfully, she had her cell phone with her. She was able to call an ambulance. And she was in excruciating pain. So once we got out of our service, I went and, and um, went to the hospital, hung out with her. And, and so they, here, was the, here was the plan, all right, on Monday, because it's a holiday. So um, on Monday, uh, after Christmas, uh, you, we're going to replace your hip. And um, you have the choice. We can replace your hip or you can sit here in this bed for three months and, um, and wait for it to heal. So, you know, a hip replacement. She got a hip replacement. They had her walking that day. She had her, I mean, she's, she had her hip replaced and they had her walking on it the very same day. And it taught me something. When we get injured or when we've been injured, in church or in ministry, the worst thing we can do is lay in bed for three months because that is when infection sets in. We're injured. Let God do a, a, a surgery on our heart, but then get back out and get serving again. I mean, it may be one step today. It may be two steps the next day. You, you know, maybe you're not going to be capable of running a marathon again, but you're going to say, God, I'm going to, I'm just going to serve you to the best of my ability. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to take whatever assignment you give me. And it's in that place that there's healing. It's in that place of, of being close to him and, and serving him and following him and living the life he created you to live that you're you're able, you know, if my mom, as you've broken her hip and you said, no, it hurts too much. I'm not going to walk on it. I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. What would have happened? I mean, it would have been pneumonia or it would have been the flu or it would have been a staph infection. And she never would have recovered. It was the doctors pushing. And, man, let it be me kind of pushing you. Let it be the Holy Spirit pushing you. Let it be the, the, the still, small God, still small voice of God pushing you to say, hey, come back. Come back. There's more for you to do. There's more for you to do. There's more people to reach with the good news of Jesus. Elijah, the last thing in chapter 19 is he says, listen, I'm the only one. I'm the only prophet. All the others have been killed. I'm the only one. I can't, I can't, I can't do this alone. And God says, actually, Elijah, there's 7,000 believers still that have never bowed to Baal. They have never worshipped him. They've remained true to me. There's 7,000 remaining. When we feel that we're the only ones serving, got to get our focus on ourselves, get our focus on Jesus and realize, you know what, we're not really the only one serving. We're not the only one. There are billions of Christians worldwide sharing Jesus in, the communi in their communities, in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods. There are billions of people worldwide who are accepting God's assignment. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. Let us be faithful to what God has called us to do. So today, I want you to thank him for what he's done in your life. 
And I would thank him for every miracle. It could be from a hundred years ago. Thank him for every miracle he's ever done in your life. Especially thank him for the cross and for Jesus. Listen to his voice again. Stop waiting for a big, huge sign. Just be still and listen for that quiet voice. Let him speak to you and bring you back. Then lastly, step back in to ministry. Use your gifts for God's glory. Do the best you can. Let him do something with it. Let him do something with your life. Let him use you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for every person here. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. People who have known you for a long time. People who um, are just hearing about Jesus and hearing the good news today for the first time. I pray every single person, every single one of us would open our hearts to you. We'd make you our Lord and our Savior. Or we'd allow you to correct us and move us back toward what you've called us to do. We thank you, God, that you never beat up Elijah. You never hurt him. You never harassed him. You were never angry with him. You were kind and you were compassionate and you were loving. And that is the way you are with us. We open our hearts to you. We open our lives to you. Speak to us in a still small voice. In Jesus' name, amen.